challenge for that sort of trial is structuring the variation in practice. Hello listeners, I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Web Committee. Thank you for listening. This Breathe Easy podcast pertains to novel trial designs in critical care. I'm joined today by the brilliant Dr. Matthew Semler, who is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Semler, along with leading many other endeavors, was the lead investigator of the SMART trial, which compared the use of normal saline to balance crystalloids and resuscitation. Thank you, Dr. Semler, for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'd like to start by asking, first, why do we need new trial designs? I mean, the standard RCT has been around forever. Why do we need to improve on it? Yeah, I think that's an important question. The traditional explanatory RCT has been a huge benefit to medicine generally in helping establish strong causal inference and identifying interventions that help and a lot of interventions that we've had for a long time that didn't help. But I think there's some shortcomings in the way we've been applying that to critical care that allow opportunities. I, I think one way to frame this is that trials have probably two different purposes. There are two types of trials. Those that are examining the development of new drugs and devices that are not in use, which may require a certain set of, uh, may, may benefit from a certain set of innovations. And then those types of trials that are uh, examining or attempting to examine things that are already common in practice are already administered. And I think that's one reason to think about how we can innovate is that those two types of trials may require different types of innovations. The other reason is that both of those types of trials have historically met challenges. So I don't have to remind everyone that these trials are expensive to conduct. They're often um, take years to conduct. And then once you have the results, they're slow to disseminate into practice. The populations that are enrolled are often too narrow. That 90% of patients we care for in the ICU would be excluded from some of these traditional trials. But at the same time, because enrollment's so hard, they're too broad. So some of these trials will enroll patients with sepsis and traumatic brain injury for whom the results of the intervention might have totally different effects. So they're too narrow and too broad. And I think in a fundamental way, traditional trials have been designed to overestimate benefit and underestimate harm. So our attempt to enrich for patients who are likely to benefit and exclude those who might harm from the intervention, which helps the trial look positive, but may not reflect what would happen when that therapy is actually applied to care. And in critical care, I think there's been this divide, but we've spent a lot of time focusing on mechanistic pathways and the development of new drugs and sometimes had the tendency to ignore supportive therapies or common existing drugs that are in practice. And I think the history of critical care has been somewhat that those, when we've looked at those interventions, that's where we've made some improvements. So I think those are two basic rationales for why we might be at a point where we could benefit from new thoughts about the trial design. You're absolutely right. So much of our scientific investigation is limited by how expensive it is to enroll patients in these studies. This leads perfectly into my next question, which pertains to the SMART trial. Now, you've led the SMART trial, which happens to be the largest interventional trial in critical care medicine, and I think that achievement's even more amazing given that it was done more cheaply than a lot of pilot studies that have been conducted. Uh, Do you mind elaborating on some of the novel features of this trial, why you designed it with those features? Yeah, absolutely. So so the SMART trial was examining the most common intervention among critically ill adults, which is the administration of intravenous fluid. And for over a century, we've had these two basic choices of IV fluid, and one of them is so-called balanced crystalloid, like lactate ringers, or or plasmolite, and the other one is saline, which is 0.9% sodium chloride. And for literally decades, some clinicians have chosen one, you know, internal medicine 
physicians used saline, anesthesiologists or other surgeons used preferred balanced crystalloids, but we didn't know which one was better for patients. And that's a unique type of question that we thought would benefit from a unique type of trial design. So our goals in this trial were to enroll patients representative of those who had received those interventions in clinical practice outside of the trial. They were to enroll early because we thought that early fluid management was probably important for diseases like sepsis, where patients were at high risk of acute kidney injury, and much of the fluid was being given not in the ICU, but in the operating room or the emergency department prior to ICU admission. And so that informed our design, and our design was a cluster randomized multiple crossover trial. So the fluid was already assigned to the unit, already available in the unit so that when patients first presented to the emergency department or the intensive care unit, the first drop of fluid they received was the assigned fluid. And it also allowed uh, all of the data for the trial to be collected in an automated fashion from the electronic health record. And so all of the information on fluid receipt and, and chloride concentration and clinical outcomes are data that are structured data in the EHR that allowed us to extract those. So that 15,802 patient trial which ultimately showed a 1.1% absolute risk reduction in the primary outcome of death, dialysis, or persistent renal dysfunction in favor of balanced crystalloids, was able to be done with study personnel time, but no dedicated study nurse, a much smaller investment than might be traditionally typical for a trial of that size because of the efficiencies of having screening, uh, data collection, some of those things embedded within the electronic health record. Well, it's very impressive work, and I think we'll probably see a lot of other studies in the future trying to emulate yours with regard to utilizing the electronic medical record to increase efficiencies. I'd like to get back to a comment you made earlier about a lot of critically ill patients are excluded from studies. One of the challenges is a lot of our patients can't provide written consent, and that leads to problems with cost as well as generalizability with regard to doing a study. So how do you think we should address some of these challenges with future studies? So I think um, the design of clinical trials in acute care medicine and critical care medicine faces this one specific challenge, which is that many of the patients who are receiving these therapies and are at risk of, of negative outcomes are vulnerable populations. They're cognitively impaired or unable to consent. And um, our system, our regulatory system as it's currently set up, has a set of boxes, one of which is you know, prospective informed consent, one of which is the exception from informed consent, one of which is waiver of informed consent. And I think as clinical researchers, we're obligated to try and answer these questions using the methods that are available to us, but recognizing that there are incidences in which informed consent is impracticable, and if the risks of the research are small, then uh, either waiver or in some cases exception from informed consent is a valuable tool. I think this is an area that our community needs to be advocating on behalf of our patients for, which is to say there are interventions that patients receive every day that some physicians use one approach, other physicians use another approach. One of those is probably better, and they're probably patients that could be having better outcomes than they're having in current practice, but those research questions have been unapproachable because approach to informed consent that protects patients and uh, allows us to answer those questions is not readily available. So I think we're, our 
research group. My mentor Todd Rice and mentor Gordon Barnard are engaged in our human research perceptions program and have are actually RON funded to study these the best way to protecting patients and, and using SIRBs for research. But I think this is an area where we all need to advocate for a clearer approach to how do we do ethical uh, patient-centered research involving patients, community members in the design for interventions in which the disease is acute, the patient is vulnerable and unable to provide prospective informed consent, but the question still needs to be answered. Well, I agree. I think that we are definitely in need of guidance on how to deal with this dilemma of doing rigorous studies in critically ill patients when informed consent is challenging. You'd mentioned earlier that a lot of the exciting investigations deal with interventions that we do every day as part of usual care. And when I think of usual care, it makes me think of a couple of studies, some of which have received criticism because the traditional two-arm randomized controlled trial uh, gets criticized when usual care gets omitted because it implies that neither arm is reflecting what clinicians are actually doing in practice. But on the other hand, studies that use usual care as one of the comparators sometimes get criticized because usual care isn't really well defined and in some of these studies that take a long time usual care changes over time so how do you think we should address the challenges of usual care with an eye to the future so i think that's a great question the role for usual care as a control group in clinical trials has probably 20 year history or more Uh, taylor thompson and david schoenfeld have a nice summary of this piece from at least a decade ago and i think There are trials for which usual care may be a logical control group. There are trials for which usual care is not a logical control group. Some of the challenges, my particular interest is in things that are being used routinely in practice in which there's already provider practice variation. An example is where we study tracheal innovation. Rapid sequence innovation involves the administration of an induction agent like atomidator ketamine every day hundreds of patients receive these drugs. Some physicians swear by atomidate, some physicians swear by ketamine. And so a logical comparative effectiveness trial might compare those two. And usual care wouldn't necessarily make much sense as a control group for that trial because in some settings, usual care would be mostly atomidate. In some settings, it would be mostly ketamine. Some settings, it would be a mix of both. And so I think that's a clean example of a trial in which, yes, it's comparing two things that are within usual practice, but no usual care would not make a logical control group. I think the challenge for that sort of trial is structuring the variation in practice that's present in practice. And there are really at least two components of that variation. One is variation that has to do with the patient, right? So you might choose atomidate for a patient who's got a little bit lower blood pressure, and that's patient-centered. That makes sense. That's variation that we're not trying to eliminate or not trying to examine. The other type of variation is variation that's not due to patient factors. So you might call it arbitrary variation. So it's due to the provider training. I'm an ICU physician, so I use atomidate. Uh, Our ED colleagues use a lot of ketamine. Right? That's not patient-centered. The same patient who shows up in my ICU or the ED or that we happen to be the one showing up to innovate, there's nothing about that choice that has to do with that patient. what's best for that patient. It's focused on me, the provider. So that variation or variation because of your region of the country or your hospital system or you're the formulary or the insurance plan, that arbitrary or non-patient-centered variation is the variation that's intended to be structured in, 
into randomization in comparative effectiveness trials. So I think that process requires really careful thought, but there are clearly times when uh, a usual care group would be a good comparator arm, and there are clearly times when that would be misleading or disadvantageous and wouldn't add much. So I think that's a, a complex design decision that probably requires a lot of thought for any individual trial. Well, I think that's a really insightful answer, and I think it also lends itself well to the follow-up question here, which is, how do we deal with questions of dose response? You know, one of the perfect examples of this is the ARDSnet ARMA study, which was a classic two-arm study comparing 6 versus 12 cc's per kilogram of tidal volume, and a lot of people out there wonder whether or not 8 cc's per kilogram might be just as good, and perhaps we need to do a study doing three arms. Or perhaps four cc's per kilogram might be even better, and we need to do four arms. How should we design trials to try to answer these questions of dose response? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question, and it has to get. It relates a little bit to the prior question of, you know, you want to make sure that you're not creating artificial bins, that you're covering the real range of what's reasonable in practice, and understanding that full range. And I, I think that's challenging. The thing that I'd say, if you could move to an ideal world, is that you want to know all of that information, right? That ideally you could, at a big enough scale with enough adaptive enough of design, you might have groups that are targeting any of these 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever the range is that's represented in practice and divide it up in a way and maybe even the very idealized way you could have um, some sort of Bayesian or adaptive rules that let you narrow in on the doses that are working best early on. All of that is out of reach to us right now. Critical care trials generally, I, I think because we need to be pushing towards the kind of those optimal trials might be the way you, optimal intervention where you're not picking two arbitrary categories or even three groups, you're finding the optimal dose. But that requires scale, right? To understand that requires either a disease that's very homogenous and you have a very specific drug for that target where your variation is going to be most of the variation, in which case maybe you can do it at a reasonable size. But really that requires huge scale. And I think it's our job to be trying to build the infrastructure to be able to do trials at scale where we can really know the optimum. And I'll point out that it's not just the optimum dose, right? Because the optimum dose isn't the same for all patients. It's the optimum optimal dose for that patient, right? So there's two axes, one of which is the intervention and one of which is the characteristics of the patient. I think we have to be able to do trials at scale to be able to have the eventual result not be, you know, drug A versus drug B is better on average apply it to everyone, but instead that idea of this intervention applied in this way is the right therapy for this patient. It might be the exact opposite for a different patient with a different phenotype, but um, those, those ideas in critical care are, are largely theoretical right now, and to, with the inefficiencies in our current trial designs, it's very hard to imagine getting there without some um, kind of transformative innovation. Man, just hearing you talk about it gets me inspired about the future of research. You mentioned adaptive trial design, or perhaps a Bayesian approach, and I've heard a lot of enthusiasm uh, for adaptive trial designs at national meetings, although I haven't seen too many implemented in critical care. What's your opinion on adaptive trial designs? So I think adaptive trials and the platform trials, I think there's a lot of promise there. Those are, I think, particularly well catered to some sorts of questions. So I think especially for drug development where you've got a new target or maybe you've got a series of drugs that could potentially hit a target and where there are 
inherent risks and costs and to understanding what moving from early phase to late phase has big cost implication decisions. I think we can learn a lot in that space from from breast cancer and asthma and other diseases where reliable biomarkers used as surrogate endpoints uh, that relates to the clinical endpoints can be used in decision making of dosing or drug selection. And um, I think that's a really good space for that. I think um, it's interesting to think about how that might be applied to more comparative effectiveness questions, um, but I think we haven't really seen much in that realm yet. I think this is in its, there, there's, for years there's been discussion about this. My sense is that adaptive trials and platform trials are in critical care or acute care getting off the ground in a way that we should see some results and have a much better sense of this in the next couple of years. I don't think it will be that long until we start seeing a couple of examples about this and getting a sense of where the opportunities and challenges lie. I would expect even with adaptive trial design trying to improve the efficiencies of cost, we're still talking about enrolling a lot of patients. And the cost of enrolling patients is a huge factor in trial design. We see a ton of studies fail because they run out of money, and we see some never even get off the ground because the cost is too great. So how would you think that we should use new trial designs to achieve results cheaply? Yeah, I think that's a really vital question. And the reason it's important to me is because my interest is in therapies that patients are being exposed to now. Studying saline emphasized to me that that's, I'm an internist. I give that therapy for a decade. And the data that are available now suggest that that might have been the wrong thing to do. And I just think about the hundreds of patients we treated. And we had those fluids for a century. I think there's a moral obligation that we have to not be administering harmful therapies indefinitely because we've made it too expensive and costly and inefficient to study them and know what's best for patients. So I think we really do have an imperative to do this. I think the framework in which we should be doing this is what we think of as a learning healthcare system. And I think what that involves is bringing patients, community members, physicians, clinicians, hospital leaders, researchers, bioinformaticians into the same table and figuring out a way to set up a longitudinal system where there are kind of these three phases. The first phase is you're seeing the data, you have the infrastructure, you're not reinventing the wheel for every trial, but you have the buyer-based API extraction from multiple centers into a cohort that stood up you've already paid for that and there are no ongoing costs. And then you're observing with all of the, the members of the research team, what are the important variations here where we might be able to improve practice? Why are some physicians giving etomidate and some giving ketamine? Could that affect mortality or PTSD or other outcomes that patients care about? Using that observational data to really understand where the practice variation is, and then moving to phase two, which is evaluating that in a way that allows you to really know causal inference, which will often involve randomization, but at a scale where you're doing it in this cohort that you've already developed, the, the per patient costs are much, much, much less than the traditional uh, approach to clinical trials. And then the final phase three is learning, taking what you've learned from that trial and the infrastructure developed to deliver the infant interventions in that trial and using it to immediately implement those results, ideally in a personalized way, such that the end of the process is not some publication, but it's a best practice advisor or CDS or something else that goes back into the environment where those work was being done and ensures that best results are being applied to patients going forward. So I think that observe 
evaluate, implement model of a learning healthcare system in which we recognize that the risks of comparative effectiveness research for some questions are not greater than the risks of giving those therapies arbitrarily, partner with patients and community members to observe variation, evaluate it, and then implement best practices iteratively. I think that model, at least for comparative effectiveness questions, things patients are already being exposed to that we don't know what's the right therapy, is a way forward that has the potential to answer a lot of questions that are arise from everyday practice at a much greatly reduced cost. Well, I share your perspective about trying to iteratively refine our studies. You mentioned about interest in looking at outcomes like mortality or PTSD, and one of the problems with mortality is that we've been doing such a good job of it with a lot of our diseases. ARDS and sepsis mortality has dropped uh, dramatically over the past few decades, uh, which has led to some prominent studies being underpowered because it makes it hard to design studies when your mortality is so low. How should we design trials to try to address this challenge? Yeah, that's a good problem to have, isn't it? Um, I think the Part of it has to be that there are a lot of outcomes that are not mortality that matter to patients, and we just have to figure out innovative approaches to systematically collecting those outcomes. So I think there are invasive, you know, the the way we've often done that for long-term outcomes and trials is having patients come back to the healthcare center, having them do R-bands in person or other measures of cognitive function or physical function. But if there are, if we can develop adequate surrogates for that, that can be done over the phone, MOCA blind or other measures, and can apply those systematically in our healthcare systems. It should be our healthcare system's interest to know how our patients are doing a year later, uh, not just did they make it out of the hospital and not get readmitted in the first 30 days. So I think thinking about how we can structure long-term outcomes, when we're talking about cohorts of patients, probably those are in those cohorts to the degree that that's possible. And that'll require innovation with health technology or other things, but I don't think we can Except that is just too costly uh, to do routine. <clears throat> and I think the other is that um, I think we've some of the barriers that we've set up that are make studies that are targeting endpoints like mortality. Um, seem out of reach are self-imposed barriers. So I think the, you know, ANZIC's critical care group, other critical care groups have done phenomenal jobs of being able to do big studies, you know, 8,000 person studies with 90 day mortality, out of hospital mortality is the outcome for what is affordable by the standards of some of our traditional explanatory trials. I think we need to look at what the actual barriers are and actual sources of cost are and say what of these are necessary regulatory aspects or are necessary for patient protection. What of them are carryover from drug development trials or things where they don't apply to this type of trial and where can we innovate so that I think we want to know about mortality. We want to know about patient-centered outcomes, and we shouldn't be inhibited in that quest just because of historical factors about how trials have been done. So I think we need to be very introspective about the what are the actual costs and actual barriers to doing trials, and which of those are historical and could be uh, we, we could innovate around, and which of those are just necessary costs that we have to uh, we'll, we'll always have to pay. You know, I would think that if we're going to use long-term outcomes and other surrogate markers, that's going to increase our reliance on using the electronic health record intelligently. And you did that in the SMART trial, but one of the challenges with trying to do this in a multi-center trial is that 
The electronic health records are fragmented across different centers and that uh, they may not communicate well with each other. What do you think the role of the electronic health records should be in future research? Uh, that's a great question. I think that's the challenge that in the next five years we have to overcome and will overcome. I, I'm actually very confident about that compared to other things. The technologies there that I think with ONC and now the NIH and CMS coalescing around FIRE as uh, the, a single approach to standardizing across systems, I think it's likely that um, either Paul Harris and REDCap, MPOG, some of these other innovators who have led in this space will blaze the path to basically setting up ways that de-identified data can be um, automatically transitioned from behind firewalls in local institutions to multi-center cohorts or databases for the use in observational research and clinical trials in a sustainable way. And they, there's a million challenges, right? The quality of the data, ensuring uh, you know, patient privacy and protection, the needing the data in real time for clinical trials and data lag and big data management, the size of these. But, but all of those are technical problems that I think this is an area in which there's going to be great innovation. I, I think this is, that's going to happen. So I think five or 10 years from now, it's going to be highly likely that in many fields, and I hope critical care gets to be one of them, it's easily or at least reasonably easily done to conduct multi-center trials in which the majority of the features of the trial, so screening for eligibility, informed consent if applicable, enrollment, randomization, monitoring, of the delivery of the intervention, monitoring the data, collection of the outcomes, all of that can be done with tools in the electronic health record. And we're not far from that. So I think I'm excited to see Michelle Gong and the Discovery Network and other folks helping lead this push to get us to the point where we just have, everybody's doing it the same way. We have systems, the institutions are used to this, and this is just the way we do business for everything. And I think once we get to that point, that creates a huge number of opportunities for us to finally be able to get at questions that were out of reach previously. And so I think uh, with regard to that, I think I'll be curious to see how the specifics works out, but I'm overwhelmingly optimistic that it will happen. I wanted to end on an important question here because Matt, you've had a lot of visionary ideas. If you were leading a clinical trial network and you could do whatever you wanted, you were the czar, how do you think we might approach a big question in critical care? How might we answer that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about. We're kind of in a moment where I think we do have to reframe what we're intending to do over the next 10 or 20 years. To, uh, and so I think the next big U.S. critical care trials network probably should begin with a program like all of us or something where there's a, from the start, a big vision about how to include patients, community members, and researchers at the same table to identify these problems that need to be solved. An investment upfront that is this big upfront cost investment in developing the database that will just not be stood up and pulled down for every trial, but is a longitudinal, ongoing, forever cohort with a lot of these key data elements that you know are going to be needed for any research you do in critical or acute care illness. And that database, you just make the investment, you get that up and running, have it working in the institutions, and then inside that you layer trials and to my eye, critical care, I think this has been recognized by NIGMS and, and some of the decisions that are making. We haven't 
succeeded yet in the model of asthma or thoracic oncology where we understand the disease, identify targeted treatments, move those through the phases and improve patient outcomes with new drugs. So I think were I to get to choose what that network does, it would spend the first five or 10 years taking everything that we do differently as clinicians that might affect patient outcomes and we're unaware of it every day in clinical care, successively answering those and figuring out for which patients, which therapies are best and ensuring that those are applied to care so that you basically are building on every success to answer all of these things that we do every day. What's the right fluid? What's the right vasopressor? What's the right approach to tracheal innovation? What's the right approach to mechanical ventilation? Not one-off trials that take five years and $10 million, but trials where we can involve this broad representative population of critically ill patients, identify the problems, answer them for individual patients with phenotyping from the EHR and potentially from biosamples and biomarkers, and, and, and doesn't neglect the implementation piece once you know something's the right therapy for the right patient. I think that vision probably has, there's probably dozens of therapies we're administering now sporadically and arbitrarily in everyday care that are either harmful or ineffective. And identifying those systematically, I think, is the way to improve care over the first five to 10 years. I think once we've made usual care moderately safe in the ICU and emergency department. I think that same platform could be eventually adapted once we understand the biology better of sepsis or ARDS and really do have targeted therapies that are likely to work. So I think phase two of that might be starting to think about new drugs or new treatments in that model. That's a pretty big vision, but... <laughs> it gets me very excited. I mean, that sounds like a... I mean, I agree, it's ambitious, but... Yeah, that seems like uh, when you phrase it like that, there's no other choice that we have if we want to progress. Yeah, I think we have to do it. I think I can't stress that enough. I, I um, you know, I, I was on in the ICU last night. There are dozens of things that we're, most of the therapies we're giving our patients all day, every day, have never even been studied. And, and even if they have small impact, that impact on the scale of common interventions for common critical illnesses is huge number of lives each year that we could be saving with if we, if we could figure this out. So I don't think there's any choice that we have to do it. I think there's a lot of question of, of how we can do it. Well, that gets me pretty excited. I agree it's ambitious, but the way you phrase it, it sounds like there's no other choice. Yeah, I think we have to do it. I think I can't stress that enough. I, I um, you know, I, I was on in the ICU last night. There are dozens of things that most of the therapies we're giving our patients all day, every day, have never even been studied. And, and even if they have small impact, that impact on the scale of common interventions for common critical illnesses is huge number of lives each year that we could be saving with if we, if we could figure this out. So I don't think there's any choice that we have to do it. I think there's a lot of question of, of how we can do it. I don't think I could put that any better. Well, we're out of time, so this concludes this Breathe Easy podcast. This was a great discussion about the future of interventional trials in critical care. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Matthew Semler, for joining me, and we're all looking forward to seeing his next big trial. Mike, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking. Likewise, the pleasure's all mine. This is Michael Anspa for the American Thoracic Society. Thank you. Thank you.